we're going to dive deeper into worship in here together. All right. All right. When here in the sanctuary on Sunday nights, we've been diving deeper into worship the last few weeks. And uh, we're going to do that again tonight and then next week. And we're going to look at Psalm chapter 84 tonight. And then we're going to finish out our, our deeper into worship study next week with Psalm chapter 150. All right. So Psalm 84 is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, I like this, like this psalm. It's got some beautiful imagery of what true worship ought to be like when, when our hearts are in tune with the Lord. Trying to find my notes now, digging around in my Bible. Here we go. All right. In Psalm chapter 84, we find the psalmists um, singing praise to God. Now, this psalm is not just written by one person, uh, but was contributed to the book from a group of people. All right? So, if you, if you notice in your Bible, underneath Psalm 84, it may say a few things. Uh, one of them is for the choir director on the Giddith. I don't know if that was the Hebrew way to say guitar. Really, nobody knows what that was. Uh, some people have talked about how it might have gone to a specific melody. Uh, some people have talked about how it might have been an instrument. Um, and then underneath it, it says a psalm of the sons of Korah. All right, A psalm of the sons of Korah. This is who wrote this lovely little song here. And most people think that this is a song that people would have sung on their way to the temple to offer sacrifices and to come to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. And here's how it starts. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found the house... And the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. And look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. Beautiful little song. And that's really what it is. 
the book of Psalms. It, it's a song book. Some of these things would have just been poetic lines, but most of them were songs that weren't just read, but sung. If you'll notice, there's even an appeal to do so uh, here in the psalm itself. The psalmist, or the psalmists, I guess, plural, go on to talk about singing for joy to the living God in verse 2. And so even though I'm not going to sing to you tonight, and we don't sing this one together, think in terms of this being a song of praise to God, of worship to Him. Because when we talk about worship itself, and I've mentioned this over the past few weeks, this worship is worship is telling God how much He is worth. And really, He's worthy of everything, right? All creation sings His praise. The mountains bow down before Him. The valleys rise up in honor. The rocks tremble. The trees wave. What do we do in response? We sing His praises, and ultimately we give our lives to Him as a living sacrifice. And so what we notice in this song of worship, Psalm 84, is what our worship ought to be like. What characterizes true worship? The first characterization is this, in verses 1 through 4. Passion. Passion. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. The group that was singing, uh, the sons of Korah, were charged in First Chronicles with being the choir that stood on the steps of the temple to sing praises there on the temple mount. And so this might have been one that people would sing they were walking up to the Temple Mount to bring sacrifices to God. And once they got there, they might have heard the same song that they had been singing along the journey performed by the choir there on the steps of the temple. It was a beautiful song. A song that talked about eager desire to express worship to one true God. You'll notice the, the verbiage that's used, a soul that longs and even yearns for the courts of the Lord. Have you ever longed for something or yearned for something? We don't use that word yearn as much in our day and time. But here's a couple of explanations maybe that, that I could share with you. Has anybody ever been thirsty before or hungry? I mean, look, I'm, I'm talking about like hungry and thirsty. I remember mowing the Elvis Presley RV park when I was 13 years old. We had mowed a couple of yards, my dad and my brother and I, and, uh, and we had this job uh, from a, a guy, we, we mowed his, his yard at his house, and he said, man, y'all have done such a good job with that, would you come and, and do the RV park up for me in Memphis? And we said, well, yeah, sure. So we told him we'd do it one time, and... About halfway through this, it had taken about six hours. We started at seven in the morning, and it's like one in the afternoon. We had drank all the water bottles that we brought with us, and we are thirsty and we're hungry. It's the middle of July. The heat is horrible. You guys know about outside, and it just feels like you jumped in a swimming pool. And so all the moisture that was in our bodies is now outside of our bodies, and our clothes are drenched, and we can't put enough water in. And we're also like... We just need something to eat. I remember that day, and I remember going to Piccadilly Cafeteria across the street and thinking, this is the best 
chicken fried steak I've ever had in my life. And it really probably wasn't all that good. But I was hungry and I was thirsty. And I remember sitting there at the table and drinking through like four or five glasses of sweet tea. I was hungry. I was thirsty that day. This idea of longing and yearning is one that's we're empty and we need to be filled back up. A soul that longs and yearns. In fact, in other psalms that are used throughout the book, we see the idea of thirsting for God. Even as the deer panteth for the streams of water, so our soul yearns after the Lord. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 2, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Because passion and worship is not just the idea of receiving something and getting filled up. It's the idea of giving something and pouring ourselves out. So the idea here is, is that our soul longs and yearns for the courts of the Lord. The people would long to go up to the temple in Jerusalem and offer sacrifices and worship to the one true God. And once they got there, they would receive a blessing. Their yearning would be satisfied. Their longing would be fulfilled. But then their heart and their flesh would continue to cry out, to sing for joy to the living God. The idea of emptying oneself in response to how the Lord has given to us. And really, this is the act of worship. When people would come to the temple, they would oftentimes bring with them sacrifices. If they weren't able to bring with them an animal sacrifice, they would bring enough money that they had saved up to purchase a sacrifice there outside the temple so that they could give it and worship to God. And so either way you shake it, they've either got money in their pockets or they've got an animal underneath their arms. They didn't just come to worship at the temple to get something. They came to give their very best. And they sang to the Lord as they're doing this. We don't do the same thing in our day and time. I mean, if, if next week you walk in here and you've got your pet cat under your arm, and you're like, Jake, I'm going to give this to God today. I'm going to go, no, that's, that's not how this works, right? We, we don't bring animals and offer them on an altar here in the front of the sanctuary to the Lord. But we do still give in worship in response to God. We give to Him. We sacrifice of the things that we have. We give in thankfulness of the abundance that we've received. We give to the Lord in true worship. And notice that these people are passionate about coming to worship God. They're passionate about singing for joy to the living God. Are you excited when we gather in this place on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights or any other time? Do you want to come so that you can be filled up as you enter into God's presence together as a church family? Do you long for the day when you can come to the Lord and contribute your financial means by putting something in the offering plate or just gathering with your brothers and sisters to lift up your voice in song? The idea of passion here in verses 1 through 4 should echo and resonate in our hearts. In fact, these these folks who were singing found the perfect illustration in some of God's creation that was there at the Temple Mount. I like the picture that's presented in verse 3. The bird has found the house, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even on your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. You guys have probably seen this already through the springtime and the early parts of summer. 
these wonderful, blessed creatures of God that are birds. You know the things that poop all over the place? They build nests in little nooks and crannies, don't they? And so I, like I can go outside in my backyard at the house and our three oak trees that are between our house and the, and the Myers house in our backyard, I can tell where the birds' nests are because of the droppings that are below, right? And then on the other side of the house, there's birds that are building little nests in the big pecan tree. And then there's times when birds don't just build nests in trees, but they build nests in buildings, this is oftentimes a very fun little thing to look at when you're driving past or when you're walking around the church. Just look at those little slats on the church steeple. You will see more birds and birds' nests than you will anywhere else in Walnut Ridge. Maybe it's just that the birds love to come to church. I don't really know. But they're up there all over the place. And it was this way at the temple. There were birds that would build their nests there around the temple complex. And they would go out and fly and retrieve their food, but they would always come back home. And where was their home? It was there at the temple, the place where God had chosen for His name to dwell amongst His Old Testament people, Israel. And just as the bird would go and come and go and come, the bird would always come back to its nest, fly out and go food and do what it needed to, but it would come back to rest in the presence of God. It was there where these birds live and take shelter for themselves. It was there where these birds would lay their young and raise them and train them to go out one day and leave, the, leave their nests and build nests of their own. It was a beautiful picture of how we should long to worship the Lord. As we go and come throughout our daily routines and our regular weekly basis, we should long for the time that we can come together and worship the Lord in His house. In fact, verse 4 says, How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. It was a special calling of some of the Israelite people to be able to live there in the temple complex. I live across the street. doesn't really count. It's not the same as living inside the church building. But there were some, some of the priests that actually got to live there at the temple complex, taking care of the daily sacrifices. And it wasn't this idea of covetousness for the job. It was this longing to be in the presence of the Lord like these servants in the temple complex got to be right there in God's presence. And it might, I might need to be kind of honest with you. If you're in this place when it's absolutely dark and there's nobody around, it's kind of creepy. You might not want to sleep here. But the idea of Wanting to dwell with God in his house is the picture that's painted. And it's not so much that the temple in the Old Testament could contain God's presence, or even that our modern day church buildings can contain the magnificence and holiness of God. It's just the place that we have chosen to set aside to lift up God's name together and honor him as holy. And really, it's a taste of what the heavenly dwelling will be like when we're all gathered there for eternity, surrounded as brothers and sisters in Christ, giving of ourselves to worship the Lord. We worship Him. True worship is characterized by our passion. Our passion to receive from the Lord, our passion to give to the Lord, our passion to be in His presence, to live with Him, to dwell with Him. And then in verses 5 through 7, we read this. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. 
Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. Here we see that true worship is characterized by priority. In other words, it took effort and energy for these people to leave their homes and come to the temple in Jerusalem. More effort than it does so for us in our day and time to come to church. And look, time we're busy. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of things that demand our attention. There's a lot of things that demand our money. There's a lot of things that demand our time. There's a lot of things that demand our lives. But what better person to give our lives to than the one true God and worship? These people who would go to the temple from their houses wouldn't just bring an animal sacrifice, but they would also have to sacrifice their time. Because time spent offering an offering of worship at the temple meant time spent away from home and time spent away from their jobs and time spent away from their daily routines in which they would provide for themselves. The psalmists cry out here that the man is blessed whose strength is in him. It wasn't just that it took effort, but in some cases it was a little bit of a treacherous treacherous. They would encounter trials and tribulations along the way. In fact, folks who didn't live in close proximity to the city of Jerusalem where the temple was would have to travel from, would have to travel from the other tribal territories in Israel, and it was a long journey. Some families could only make it once or twice a year on special days like the Day of Atonement and Passover. Others could make it a little more frequently. But this journey sometimes took a great deal of time, a great deal of energy, and it came at sometimes cost and peril to their family. But the Jews believed that when they would march to Jerusalem in true worship to God, that the Lord would protect them and provide for them. Notice that the man who travels and makes this journey to worship finds strength in the Lord. It's a map that's written on his heart. The highways to Zion. You think about getting out your cell phone now, and when you need to know where you're going, you, just, you punch in the address on Google Maps, and it gives you the directions to get there. So my brother got married at a place called Cedar Ridge outside of Paragould yesterday. We didn't know where we were going Friday night for the rehearsal other than Cedar Ridge. So Stephanie looked up the address, and she punched the address into the GPS on her phone, and it took us straight there. But this idea of in whose heart are the highways to Zion is this. You don't have to punch it in or have a map in front of your face because you know the way to the Lord in your heart. I mean, it's, it's kind of like going back to that childhood home you grew up in that you loved so much. You don't have to ask people the address. You don't have to stop and find directions. You know exactly where you're going. People who want to come to worship the Lord together don't need to have a map. They don't need to have a cell phone to point the way. They simply know to come and worship the Lord together. Verse 6 talks about passing through this valley of Baca. Uh, the, the, they make it into a spring. Uh, there's, there's some uh, discrepancy on what this word actually means. It's not used very often in the Old Testament. Uh, it's related to a, it, it looks similar to a verb that means weeping. 
So if, if it's taken in that kind of metaphorical sense, this valley of Baca is representative of the hard times we go through in life. And that people would come to worship the Lord even in the hard times of their lives. They would choose to make the journey from home to Jerusalem. Some people think that it's related to, uh, to uh, a place where there were balsam trees in certain valleys coming up the roadways to the city of Jerusalem. And in those valleys, uh, there would oftentimes be, uh, uh, oftentimes be uh, pools of water where they would come to. And though this, this journey was long and this journey was treacherous, and by the time they had descended into the valley and they had to look up at the, this, uh, at the ascent they were going to have to make, they would go, oh man, can we do this? But then they would realize the springs, the pools that were around them of water and take that as provisional strength to refill their cans to drink on the way up to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. However it's taken, the point remains the same. Either the Lord provides us with the spiritual strength we need to make it through the hard times or He provides us with the physical things that we need to get to the point where we can come to worship Him. And at the end of verse 6, it says the early rain also covers it with blessings. There's times in life when storms are representative of difficulty and trial, right? But then there's other times in life when rains are representative of God's blessings that fall down upon us. Anybody ever experienced one of those refreshing rains before? I like, especially in the fall around here, when all these farmers start to burn off their fields and there's just smoke rising from the air and it's still kind of hot outside and the mosquitoes are eating you alive and you're like, man, God, I'm glad I'm going to heaven because this kind of feels like, you know. So you're at that point in life and you look around and all of a sudden it's just one of those gentle rains. You start to see the cloud cover come in. The heat start to, starts to dissipate. The wind comes through and knocks the humidity down a little bit. And then the raindrops just start to fall. It's a little mist, a gentle rain. It settles the dust. It settles the smoke. It's refreshing. The early rain also covers with blessings. The Lord provides His people with blessings on their way to worship Him. It says that from strength to strength, every one of them appears before God in Zion. The Lord longs for every single person to worship Him like He made them to worship Him. In other words, God is more passionate about us worshiping Him than we ever could be about worshiping Him ourselves. The Lord longs for His people to come together and to lift up His name, to bring their sacrifices and offerings and present themselves before Him. If that's the case, then our worship ought to be characterized by prioritization in our personal lives and in our weekly routines and daily schedules. We ought to choose to come and worship God because we want to, because we've made it a priority in life. Do you know there's not a person yet that I've talked to, whether they're a church member or somebody who's just attended church here that has said, you know, Jake, I just decided that I was never, ever going to come back to First Baptist Church. They've come for a while, and then they don't come one week. And then they don't come another week. And then they come back, but then they miss a few more weeks, and they just kind of fall out of church. And every time I, 
man, we, we'd love to see you. We, we've missed you here at First Baptist Fallen Ridge. We want to see you back for, for worship. Yeah, we just, Jake, I guess we just we didn't come that Sunday and, and we just didn't come the next. When we fail to make worship a priority, we fail to worship. True worship is characterized by priority, making God a priority, giving Him what He And then in verses 8 through 12, we read this. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give answer, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield The Lord gives grace and glory. No thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord God of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. True worship is also characterized by humility. Humility. It's the opposite of pride. It's arrogance that has been completely emptied and drained of self-sufficiency. These folks cry out to the Lord God of hosts. In fact, this title is used more in this one psalm than it it is used in any other psalm singularly throughout this entire book. This idea of O Lord God of hosts or O Lord God Almighty means that He is God of the armies of heaven and of the people that He has made on the earth. He's in charge of everything. And the psalmists don't say, O Lord God of hosts, listen to us. They cry out in reverence, hear my prayer. Lord, would you just would you turn your ear and, and listen to us? We who are descended from that cheater Jacob, our hearts are dirty and filthy, but we know that you forgive us through your grace and your mercy. You are our shield of God. And look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside, anywhere else. One day, standing at the doorway of the temple is better than living in the finest palace built on uh, uh, unrighteous profit. In fact, we see in in 1 Chronicles that the sons of Korah weren't just charged with singing as a choir there on the steps of the temple mount, but they were also charged with being, I called them the holy bouncers. They would stand at the threshold of the temple to ensure that people were coming in reverence to worship the Lord. And this job wasn't like the job of the priests who got to live and dwell there in the temple. It wasn't like the ones who got to offer sacrifices on the altar. They were just the door guys. They stood there as people go in and people come out. Getting to kind of look back and stand there and look out being that close to the Lord and His presence there at the temple. I thought about this yesterday um, in, in relation to uh, uh, the wedding. So I was a groomsman in my brother's wedding. It's a position of honor, right? You get to wear the suit. You got to pay too much for it, but you get to wear the suit. You get to stand in a line. You're over there next to him. It's a wonderful place to be. But then you've got this other group of guys that have agreed to assist with the wedding, and they're not groomsmen, they are the ushers. 
And the ushers have the fun job. They have to walk the grandmas in who have a chance of falling in the middle of the aisle, you know, because they can't walk well. They also have the job of handing out programs, of telling people that, hey, you're kind of in the wrong seat over there. You need to move over here. This one's reserved for the family. They've got to do this for setup and this for teardown. They've got to help and do some of the menial work that the groomsmen are up here. They don't have to do. The idea here in verse 10 is that is, is one of humble service to the Lord. These people would rather stand just at the doorway of the house of God than live in a palace of gold built upon earthly treasures. Better is one in your courts than a thousand spent anywhere else. I don't know if he's, he's out there listening or not. He might be. I'll talk about him anyways. Well, if you notice Merle Mitchell around the hallways tonight, he's, we, he's what we call one of our gatekeepers. We've got a bunch of different guys that rotate working security here at the church. Randy Clements has done that before. I'm trying to there. I, I, I can't remember who all's on that. There's a lot, of, a lot of guys that volunteer to walk through the hallways and make sure that doors are open when they need to be and locked when they need to be and make sure that everybody's in the right place. Just think about that for a moment. In terms of what this psalm is saying, better is one day serving as a gate, watering the halls at First Baptist Church, Walnut Ridge, than spending every night of my life in the finest house in Lawrence County, eating the best food that there is, not having a care in the world about anything, and getting to enjoy the pleasures of earthly life. Better is one day serving God on the perimeter of his place of worship than a thousand spent anywhere else. That's some humility, isn't it? God, if I, if I could just have a taste of serving you, if I could just be a part of it for one moment, it would be such a glorious blessing. And it is. Because that's how this psalm ends. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord God of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. The idea of humble service to the Lord is rewarded with His constant and continual presence in life. It wasn't just that these people were content with standing at the doorway of the house of God. They wanted to be in God's presence. So much so that they would give up everything else just to do so. And the Lord promises not to withhold any good thing from those who will walk uprightly. We sometimes think of worship as the time we come together in here on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights and we sing songs and that's a time of worship, right? It's a time we set aside and a place that we set aside to lift high God's name and give Him the glory that He's due. Tell Him that He is worthy to receive the honor and the glory and the praise that we give to Him. But the truth of the matter is, worship does not start or stop when we come into this building or leave this building. Worship is a lifestyle. It's an act of giving oneself to God continually all of the time. And if we'll walk uprightly and follow the Lord inside this building and outside of this building, then He will not withhold any good thing from us. 
He'll reward our passion to worship Him with His continual presence in our lives. As we make worship a priority to Him, we will come to realize that He shouldn't just have first place in our lives, but that it's better when we live our lives with Him as the King and the person in charge. As we choose to bow in humble reverence before Him, He lifts us up and says, My child, I'm glad to see you. How blessed is the man who trusts in you. I saw this driving back from Branson one time. It was actually at a a little Catholic church in Missouri. Just a small little place driving back down the highway. And it just struck me. There were, there were two avenues into their parking lot. One was right here and it had a sign going into the parking lot. And the other was right here next to it. And it had a sign pointing out of the parking lot. And over here it, it had a sign that said, Enter to serve. Oh, sorry, enter to worship. And it said, exit to serve. I thought, that's pretty good. Worship ought to take place at the church house when we lift high God's name. And it ought to take place in our lives as we serve the Lord and as we serve other people. And it reminded me of an illustration that Dr. Brett Cooper had used when he was preaching from Romans chapter 12 about living a life of worship to the Lord. It was a Baptist church. And over the doors of their sanctuary in the back which was just a, just had two rows of church pews. If you guys know what those kind of church buildings look like, just traditional old school Southern Baptist church, just two rows of church, church pews, center aisle. And over the top of the back of the door, as people would come in through the foyer, it said, enter to worship. Pretty good reminder to prepare your hearts as you came in for service. But one day the pastor realized that maybe that wasn't all there was to worship. Maybe there was a little bit more to being in God's presence than just coming to a church house and singing hymns together and then leaving. And so he decided to take off the sign, but not remove it totally. Instead, he relocated it. And instead of putting the, door, putting the sign over the two doors as people came into the church... He put the sign over the two doors as people were going out of the church. And so after he preached his message on Romans chapter 12, he said, enter to worship. And the people left the building underneath that sign, enter to worship. I'm going to ask you tonight to enter into worship. Whether you're here at the church house or whether you're out there, world, whether you're with your friends or your family, on your jobs or hanging out with your friends, God is worthy of our lives here and there and everywhere. Do you long to be in God's presence wherever you are? Because He longs for you to be with Him wherever you are. We've got a hymn that we're going to sing together tonight that's based off of this psalm, Psalm chapter 84. And some of you will recognize it and know it. Others of you may, may not be as familiar to you. It's a song written by Matt Redman, and it's simply called Better Is One Day. And uh, as Nick leads us in singing this song tonight, I want you to sing these words with a heart and an attitude of true worship to God. <laughs> 